Hi, this is Abe Hefter, and welcome to You Heart to Hartford, the show that takes you inside the University of Hartford and the stories being told by the many talented people who are the University of Hartford, faculty, staff, students, and alumni, the experience and experiences they're sharing on our West Hartford campus and beyond. Joining us today is Jeffrey Welsh, class of 07, a talented saxophonist who came to play at the University of Hartford um, basically because of faculty member Carrie Kaufman. He excelled in music while at UHart and followed his planned career path by enrolling in a master's program at USC after graduation. Now, fast forward to today, and uh, well, when Jeffrey Welsh isn't playing the saxophone, he's practicing law cannabis law. Jeffrey, thanks for being here. Abe, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me today. Excited for our chat. So let's go back to your earlier days as a musician and um, how it was that you brought your musical skills to the University of Hartford and the impact that Professor Kerry Kaufman had on you. Absolutely. Um, so kind of rewinding back to, uh, you know, high school, um, for me, I was in a, um, you know, a state level, uh, competition in, in the state of Pennsylvania where I went to high school, um, and met Carrie's husband, Glenn Adsit, who's also a professor, um, at the Hart School of Music as well. Um, I really, really enjoyed my time, um, you know, working with uh, Glenn as Glenn as my conductor in, in that uh, all-state um, experience in Pennsylvania, um, and I wanted to chat with him, you know, sort of about my future. And um, he said, "Look, I really think it would be, uh, you know, a, a good move for you to meet my wife. You know, she's based on the East Coast as well. Um, you know, she had studied under some of the legendary, you know, saxophonists, um, you know, of our time, um, and so we." teed up a, a meeting um, at Penn State where Carrie was teaching at the time. Um, and I really, really sort of had my um, mind set on actually going to um, Penn State because that's where Carrie was going to teach. And I thought, look, if I'm really going to, um, you know, bloom as a, as a professional saxophonist, um, you know, having the perfect fit as a teacher is going to be crucial. Um, I believe it was, you know, sometime in, in the midst of me um, sort of auditioning um, to get into some other schools, um, Eastman School of Music, uh, Berkeley, mm -hmm. New England Conservatory. Um, Carrie let me know that, uh, she, you know, she was leaving Penn State and was going to go to Hart um, and, and the University of Hartford. Um, so I just ended up uh, sort of adding uh, Hart, uh, the Hart School to uh, the end of my audition schedule, um, you know, did a good enough job to, to get accepted and, um, uh, my mind was set, you know, hard, hard is where it was. And what's the most interesting now, Abe, is, you know, I do obviously my, my day to day is very different, um, than it was back, back in my, um, you know, music performance days. But, um, the impact Carrie had on me was, uh, instrumental in that, um, the, the life skills she taught me specific to, you know, diligence, uh, you know, practice, uh, focus, uh, never giving up, um, you know, belief in oneself are all skills that really translate, um, you know, beyond, um, you know, a music practice room or a, a stage and, and really apply to life generally. And so it was under Carrie's tutelage that I really, um, you know, gained a newfound confidence um, and belief in myself. Um, and that is just sort of what led me to being um, 
I wouldn't call myself fearless per se, but, uh, you know, um, unafraid to pursue, uh, you know, things that developed later in my life as, you know, entrepreneurial opportunities Mm. presented themselves. So you talk about those opportunities and, uh, I I guess you could say you've pivoted a few times during your professional career. One pivot came when you decided to pursue entertainment law at Pepperdine University. What took you in that direction? Following graduation from from Hart, I was you know still very much set on uh, you know becoming the world's you know uh, best saxophone player. That right. was that was quite simply my goal. Um, so went to went to USC to get my master's in saxophone performance as well. Um, had an amazing experience there, but but quite candidly, you know Los Angeles is a is a much bigger pond um, you know than than Hartford. Um, and after you know I was I was successful by all means there. You know I, I was touring. Uh, you know, touring, recording, uh, you know, for studio gigs, recording for movies. I was, you know, first chair um, or first first replacement chair with the Los Angeles Philharmonic and the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra. So was doing, you know, great, great things, but um, kept leaving the studio gigs in particular, Abe, um, talking to music managers and music lawyers, um, people who were working with sort of top tier A-list artists. Um and, and, and somewhat recognized, hey, you know, maybe my skill set um, might be better, you know, might be more useful um, on, on that side of the equation. Um, and, and I'll be honest, Abe, you know, p- part of me at the time, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say I was naive uh, per se at, at 18. Um, but once you have a couple years on your own, um, you know, in Los Angeles, um, you know, the cost of living was dramatically different. Um, and I was I was concerned about, you know, uh, waking up at 40 um, without any type of backup plan. Um, and, you know, my, my, my teachers at USC were, you know, are, are, and still are, you know, some of the most um, accomplished studio musicians in LA. I was working with Jim Rodder, who is, um, you know, the first chair with the Los Angeles Philharmonic and Hollywood Bowl, and also Dan Higgins, who is uh, the guy who is um, really, really, if you've heard a saxophone on the movies or TV, it's probably him. He's, you know, he's the sound of Lisa Simpson. Um, he recorded everything from Catch Me If You Can. He's the lead saxophone saxophonist at the Grammy band and the Oscars band. And so I was really working with people that were, um, you know, at the um, pinnacle uh, of their profession. But I realized, you know, very shortly after graduation, um, you know, my professors were about to be my competitors. Um, mm. And candidly, I knew there were only so many slots. And so I thought, hey, what if I diversified, um, you know, myself a little bit um, and, and differentiated my education and, and started working, you know, on the business side of music. And that's what initially led me um, to Pepperdine. I, I knew I wanted to stay local in the LA area. Um, so, you know, I applied at USC, UCLA, Pepperdine, and uh, Loyola for law school. Um, Pepperdine made the most sense for me. And, uh, and, that, and that's, where, that's, where I, that's how I got there in 2010.
Jeffrey, it's clear that I guess the doubts that you you started to have when you considered a, a full time career as a professional musician, you know, those doubts haven't prevented you from continuing your musical journey. For example, you know, right now we're getting a taste of your musical talents so with your terrific cover of the the Sam Smith hit "Stay with Me." Um, how important has it been for you to be able to continue to remain grounded in your love of music? And of course, we'll delve more into this, but even while your career has taken you in a different direction. It's a, uh, it's, it's a, it's a vital part of who I am, you know, and, and, and one of the other things that I think I sort of neglected to mention was music, you know, for me is, is my passion. It's sort of, you know, the pilot light that keeps, you know, my soul alive and, um, you know, for better or worse as a gigging musician, you know, gigging five days a week, teaching, you know, as much as possible. Um, I thought I, I felt that pilot light starting to go out. Right. Mm-hmm. And my passion started to turn into, um, a job and I never wanted to be, you know, an old jaded bitter um, musician and for better or worse there's a lot of those you know in any major um, city um, you know and, and some of my uh, some of my colleagues were sort of like that and I, I was turning into that right I was starting to dread the gigs um, and, and so a, a huge part of me um, you know th- that that was also one of my main reasons for my pivot at the time but um, you know f- fast forward to now, um, I, you know, n- now I'm back to a place where music really is my passion. It's an outlet um, for me, you know, creatively and even intellectually, just just a way to stimulate sort of a different side of my brain because my days are spent, you know, um, being a lawyer, which is yeah. a little less a little less creative um, than being a musician. Um, and so that 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 is what's uh, most rewarding to me now is that music's never going anywhere for me. Now mm-hmm. now I just have the opportunity to utilize music as a um, as a creative tool and less as a, a means to pay the bills, um, which for, worked out best for me. So in entertainment law, you've represented the likes of Seth Rogen, uh, Florida Georgia Line. What was that like? And, and what exactly does an entertainment lawyer do? Um, well, what's, what's interesting, Abe, is, um, you know, most of, so, so after graduating law school, um, I actually took up a position as a lawyer at uh, William Morris Endeavor, which is, you know, the world's largest um, talent agency. And there I was working, um, you know, on, w- with a host of, uh, you know, artists and, and, and talent on sort of, you know, larger mainstream um, opportunities, like, you know, uh, negotiating their Coachella deal or things like that. Uh, I was also in the corporate business affairs department there. So was also working um, with, at the time, uh, WME had just acquired um, IMG. Um, and, and so, so that was a large part of my job as well. But interestingly enough, a lot of my celebrity representation really didn't begin um, until I started practicing cannabis law. And I, I think that the reason um, that is was, A, because of my experience at William Morris Endeavor, um, and B, um, because of my performance background, you know, I, I'm one of the only, if, if not the only, um, you know, cannabis focused lawyer in California, at least, um, that really has meaningful entertainment and cannabis experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most people just sort of fall in one of those buckets, but, um, entertainment law and cannabis law are so interesting to me because, um, they're really, they're broad, they're, they're it's a broad term, right? And in any given day as an entertainment lawyer, um, you might be helping someone, with an intellectual property issue, right? Like helping them with uh, file a trademark or, or fight a trademark. 
Um, you might be helping them, um, you know, book a contract or, or sign an executor, negotiate an agreement. Um, you also might be helping them with a merch deal or um, a fight they're having um, with regards to a young artist who might have stolen a sample and didn't get clearance, mm-hmm. right, for their song. Um, and so it's it's very broad what you do as an entertainment lawyer. And, and being a cannabis lawyer is, is the same way. It doesn't really mean anything specifically. You know, on any given day, I'm helping clients um, apply for and acquire licenses, still doing a lot of intellectual property work, uh, some real estate work, some employment work, um, some local government work, some state government work. And so um, it, it was really, it's really interesting to me that uh, sort of where I thought I was going, uh, entertainment mm-hmm. um, and, and the law of entertainment um, is this really broad um, broad topic of law and, and cannabis law is, is the same. And I think it's made me a bit of a Swiss army knife as it relates to the practice of law. Cause most of my legal colleagues, right. They spend their day really just focused on one, um, sort of one industry and one industry with a, with a finite set mm. of, um, legal issues to deal with. And, and for me, it's, it's every single day is different, which, um, as a lawyer, um, now, you know, at least keeps me, um, keeps my uh, curiosity and interest, you know, peaked. So during your first year at law school, you met a friend and, and, and business partner, Luke Stanton, and discovered the emerging field of cannabis law. That's right. Uh, what led to that discovery? And I'm, I'm curious as to, um, you know, how entertainment law and cannabis law came together for you. So, you know, I was very fortunate to meet Luke my first year. You know, law schools sort of split up uh, the first year in particular into a bucket. So you have, you know, the same six, seven classes um, your first year with the same, you know, 40, 50 students. So you get extremely close, um, you know, with those students. Law school is an extremely, uh, you know, challenging, you know, intellectual um, and and, and journey of stamina, frankly. (laughs) It's a little bit, uh, you know, it's a little bit like getting inducted into a professional fraternity or sorority candidly um you know you gotta jump through a lot of hoops and go through a lot right. to get there. so luke and i became you know best friends candidly you know um our first year um and at the time my first semester of law school um i was unable to get loans yet so i was working um as as a music teacher my first semester i, I had about five students my first semester of law school um i was also bartending um and, uh, and, and waiting tables uh, my first year of law school um, on the weekends. Um, and then I was also valeting cars um, mm. during the week. And this was just so I could, you know, pay for food and rent money. Right. Um, just kind of get, get by. Um, fortunately, my second semester of law school, Luke was, um, you know, able to offer me an opportunity with a cannabis-focused criminal defense firm um, in Los Angeles. Um, and it was a paid gig and it paid enough that it allowed me to shed everything else I was doing and just focus on the law, which that was my goal. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I didn't I didn't want to, uh, as a as a law student, be having to work, you know, 20 to 30 hours in a week in addition to being a, a full time student. I, it's just not going to set you up for for, uh, you know, success as a, as, as a as a student. Um, so, you know, when I started and got that opportunity with Luke, um, you know, we, we started to put our heads together. And, and interestingly enough, Abe, 2010 was when I started working in, in the in the legal cannabis field. And that's when Colorado, um, mm-hmm. that's the year Colorado passed their Adult Use Act, um, you know, where they, where they started to treat um, cannabis like alcohol and anyone over the age of 21 could uh, could purchase cannabis without a specific license or, or you know medical marijuana idea or recommendation. Right. Um, and so we saw what was happening. You know, um, 
you know, in states like Colorado, Washington, and Oregon, which were, you know, the first three states to pass these laws. And we thought, hey, California is coming. You know, it's the biggest market. It was the first state in the union to actually pass a medical marijuana law back in 1996. And we thought, hey, you know, let's kind of, you know, build our foundation now um, and plan for, you know, when California does go um, recreational. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we we sort of hatched a plan in law school that eventually we would, um, you know, start our own practice, um, you know, focused on that. Um, And uh, because again, at the time in 2010, cannabis law in California wasn't about, you know, helping a client grow their business to really meaningful revenue. It was about keeping them out of jail. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it was very criminal defense focused, um, but we saw what was coming. And I think, you know, I'm very thankful for meeting Luke and uh, mm-hmm. for us coming together and, and, and developing um, that insight um, that we wanted to, you know, kind of lay the foundation um, for our for our future in the cannabis space. In April 2017, you co-founded a, a full service creative agency, Composite, which helps guide and grow brands in the legal uh-huh. cannabis industry and helps to legitimize the perceptions of the cannabis industry. Um, what are the challenges associated with legitimizing those perceptions? That's that's it's a long it's a long road and it's a road we're still uh, traveling to get over those perceptions. You know, the goal of Composite was uh, initially kind of like as an incubator aid for our, for our clients. We, we started that um, right before you know adult use legalization in California as a way to really help give a lot of our internal clients at, at my the, the firm I started Frontera a facelift. Um, you know, we wanted them to be able to compete um, post um, you know adult use passage in California because. Any time, you know, adult use um, gets passed, there's an influx of like corporate money, right? And so we knew that there were going to be real brands with real, um, you know, with real investors behind them. Um, And so part of our goal with Composite 2, to answer your question, Abe, was, um, you know, uh, beginning to shed negative stereotypes around the cannabis plant, right? And I think part of that is is doing exactly what I'm doing now, right? Having conversations with people who might not be in the space Mm -hmm. and for them to realize, Oh, you know, this guy's in the cannabis space and he doesn't sound like some, you know, hardcore stoner. He's he seems right. like a, you know, productive member of society who's intelligent and well educated and mm-hmm. uh, you know, highly motivated. Um, and so part of that's a, you know, part of that for us is is a day-to-day battle, you know, talking to people outside the space or um, entertainment assets or potential investors who are interested in coming into the space. And so um, you know, p- part of that responsibility falls on each and every person's shoulders that that works in the space. And, and part of that responsibility for, for Composite was sort of cleaning up, right, making a, a, a what you would consider to be a, a typical cannabis brand, um, really sort of cleaning that up so it could be seen on the shelves of a Target or, a, mm-hmm. you know, CVS or, a, you know, a big box store. Um, and, and that starts with, you know, taking your optics, you know, seriously, and then also a heavy, heavy dose of uh, education um, as it relates to, um you know, the war on drugs and the effect it's had and, and sort of the the thesis behind the war on drugs and, and, the, and the goal, you know, mm-hmm. this is sort of a, a topic for a separate podcast, sure. probably. But, um, you know, I could go far, far into that. But most people have just been fed, you know, decades, uh, generations, uh, you know, of, of propaganda as it relates to the plant. You know, cannabis was legal um, in the United States until, uh, you know, until a paper baron named William Randolph Hearst mm-hmm. um, 
was was upset and, and knew that the hemp plant was you know cheaper um, and more durable to produce. Um, and so as a paper baron, he started a smear campaign that led to cannabis being called marijuana. And again, I could spiral off and go on and on, but that that's where most of the negative misperception about the plant comes from. Um, a lot of people don't realize, you know, the history of, of the cannabis and hemp plant in our country. You know, the Declaration of Independence is written on hemp paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a, a lot of people, you know, without without that history, um, you know, th- that's really what I, another thing I try to do on a day to day basis is, is educate and form. And, and hopefully our clients are, you know, slightly more effective, mm-hmm. you know, tools at, at, at that education than even I am. What advice do you have for young entrepreneurs? My, I think my biggest piece of advice, you know, Abe, particularly the, with the career that I had right now, I'm, I'm extremely fortunate. I'm sure my parents will be listening. So I got to <laughs> thank them for being infinitely supportive throughout my pivots. You know, there were certainly times during my career, particularly, you know, when I decided to pivot towards law school where friends, family members, colleagues said, Jeff, what the heck are you doing? You know, you're by all intents and purposes, a very, you know, successful, you know, musician on your way up the, the ladder, you know, in Los Angeles, um, you know, I, I felt like my ceiling would be higher and that I would have, uh, that I would have more personal fulfillment and success. And so I, I think it, it starts with like a concrete belief in yourself and, and people like my parents and, and Carrie really solidified, um, that belief in myself. And so there are going to be people, no matter what you're doing in your life that are not going to believe in you, that are going to be naysayers. Um, and so I, I think it's important to listen to criticism, Right. Um, but um, a- as long as that criticism doesn't um, destroy, you know, a-, a-, a fundamental belief you might have in yourself. Um, and so I would say, first and foremost, you know, if you believe in something, attack that with, you know, really, really not not reckless uh, abandon, but um with, with really don't look back, right? Mm-hmm. Once you once you make a decision, I think secondarily for me was st- stay curious, right? And by that, I, I just mean. I went to law school to be an entertainment lawyer, right? And I even tried my hand at being an entertainment lawyer at you know the world's largest talent agency, and I was you know successful at that. Um, but but staying curious to me and in, in my life meant you know taking an opportunity like exploring the cannabis space, even when it was something that I never thought I would be doing because it was interesting to me. And, um, you know, the reality, right, is that the entertainment worlds and and the cannabis worlds, they're kind of like peanut butter and jelly, right? They go really Mm -hmm. well together, right? Um, Music and cannabis is is sort of been synonymous really, you know, since the dawn of time. And, um, you know, particularly coming from the world I come from, right, like a lot of amazing jazz music was was built, you know, uh, you know, (laughs) with with, with cannabis in mind, right? Or or, or with cannabis as part of the recipe, I guess, is a more appropriate way to say it. Um, And so stay curious fundamental belief in yourself and to the point of carry you know finding good mentors right like seeking out good mentors people that believe in you but that are also going to push you right Mm -hmm. a good mentor doesn't just say you're great a good mentor tells you when they're not that impressed with you right because they can see what you're capable of and are going to push you beyond um, what you even think you're capable of and so i i know that was a a, maybe a little long-winded but uh that would be my that would be my recommendation for uh for for any entrepreneurs or you know students or recent grads listening right now and uh, as we come full circle in uh, in our conversation jeffrey where can we hear you play the saxophone 
Well, this year's a tough one. But <laughs> one of the things I was able to do over quarantine, um, you know, this year was sort of uh, finish and, and build out my studio um, at my house. And so I'm really, really focusing a lot this year on, on producing more myself. Typically, you know, in a, a normal year, um, I'm usually gigging in Los Angeles, you know, once a month. Um, these days, I, I end up, um, you know, DJing a lot mm-hmm. um, you know, at cannabis events or, or local um, LA clubs. Um, and I'll play saxophone while I'm DJing. So, you know, I'll, I'll spin a tracker um, and then kind of improvise on top. I usually combine that with some type of visuals. Um, and the reason I, I just don't have like a band right now is because I don't have much time to rehearse. Right. Um, and so it's easy for me to, you know, spend a couple hours um, each week, you know, uh, planning for um, a gig. Um, but, you know, I do have that. I do have a SoundCloud account. Most of my SoundCloud posts as of late are, um, are mixes, you know, that I've performed or created um, for clients. A lot of clients, uh, legal clients will actually come to me um, and ask me to create, you know, a mixtape for their, um, for their event or for their new product, which is really fun that I'm just, I'm not, I'm not just the lawyer to a lot of my cannabis clients um, as well. But yeah, you know, in a, in a normal year, I'm out playing in LA once a month. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, my SoundCloud does have some, some, um, some, some originals on there. Um, but for the most part, um, that's, that's one thing my, uh, about quarantine, my, my goal is to come out of quarantine with some, you know, fully produced tracks. I'm working on an EP right now. Um, finally getting my production chops together. That's one thing I wish <laughs> I spent more time doing at heart was learning, learning my way around a studio. I can, I can play the horn, but, uh, you know, um, producing music is a different, is a different language altogether. Um, so that, that, that's, that's where you can find me. Hopefully next year I'll be, uh, you know, I'll be, I'll be back performing. You know, once things are safe. Jeffrey Welsh, class of 07, the University of Hartford, a saxophonist turned lawyer whose legal work has helped shape cannabis and hemp policies across the U.S. and around the world, and who continues to blow a mean horn at clubs in the greater L.A. <laughs> area. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you for this, and um, well, best of luck to you always. Abe, thanks so much. It was an absolute pleasure. Production assistance for You Heart to Hartford is provided by University of Hartford undergraduate students Drew Simino and Josh Fromowitz. I'm Abe Hefter.